Let's see. Well, happy birthday. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Yep. You guys like 33? Three. Three. No, 34. 34. 34. 34. 34. Oh. Yep. I remember 34. <laughs> A long time ago. Longer than me. Yep. Right. So, was, speaking of selling the Reese, I was when I came into Scouts, I had to sell for two. Because that's the little younger brother. Yeah, right. That was sort yep. of the, oh, you go sell the Reese and I'll go deliver them. Well, it's just total BS because all you would do is drive around and then make me get out of the car and run them up and slap them to people's doors, which back then you was call like, that delegation. Yeah. Back then, pre you know, digital currency, you had to collect checks or collect oh. cash. Now everything's Venmo, mm -hmm. which is fantastic. So by the time we go and deliver the Reese, 98% of them have already been paid for, which right. it's made as a parent when you have to like front the money. Oh my gosh. It makes life a lot better. We're selling Girl Scout wreaths for my, I mean, uh, Girl Scout cookies for my daughter. Yeah. And, you know, it's hard to collect everything. And I can't imagine how much money our dad would lose and mom would lose every year on wreaths selling 133 times three. And just, you know, the last 70, we would say we sold them, but just try to find people after you got them to take them in. And right. I'm sure he's losing quite a bit every year on it. I went to the sales team and said, hey, guys, uh, here's a bunch of wreaths. Give these out to customers. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> our Kennedy tank on our property, we'd have 30 wreaths hung everywhere every door had a wreath on it that's for sure <laughs> like yeah he sure is festive <laughs> yeah and it's sure. funny we um talk about selling christmas wreaths all the time but this is the first time in probably 10 years i even put any thought towards delivering the wreaths because that was a hell of a oh, yeah. that was an unbelievable experience because right. you had to get the checks but also just putting that many wreaths in the back of a pickup truck and trying to figure out which ones go to who was right i mean that was like a three weekend <laughs> process yeah so fast forward 10 to 15 years will drones be delivering the wreaths then man i hope if any question. of my if my boys and uh boy scouts i hope that's the truth that'd be funny Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Industrious Podcast. Thank you for joining us from wherever you get your podcasts, or if you're joining us on the Assessa YouTube channel, thank you for doing so. Um, if you haven't subscribed on there, please do so. It's free of charge, so we really appreciate it. Today, we've got double your pleasure with the Kennedy Twin boys, Bill and Jim Kennedy. Welcome to the Industrious Podcast. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for having us. And happy sure. birthday. Thank you. Thank you. I wish I'd, I already knew that. That was kind of well planned. I would have had something else for them, but next time um we'll let you guys fight over who gets to do the the cool introduction but why don't you guys give us a little background yourselves great well i'm uh bill kennedy and uh president of kennedy tank i'm married to my wife ellen we started dating at bishop chatard high school back in let's see 2005 and have uh, been married eight eight <laughs> years have four young kids a second grader at ihm a kindergartner then a five-year-old boy and a two-year-old girl and uh, uh, belong to Highland, play golf at Highland, and uh, also uh, big members of IHM and the Chittard communities. But we work at Kennedy Tank. I'm the president of our uh, fifth generation family owned business. Uh, we have about 225 employees, three different locations, and uh, business has been really good to us the past couple of years. 
And I'll hand it over to my twin brother, Jimmy. Yep. And I'm Jim Kennedy. It's great to be on the podcast. Um, I went to IU. I am the vice president of sales at Kennedy Tank. I've been at Kennedy Tank about five years. Um, really lucky to be on the team. And we do have a a cool history that we'll discuss today. Um, I am married uh, to my wife, Anna Grace Kennedy, and have a son, Patrick Kennedy, who's 17 months and three days. Nice. So yeah, the diehard IU fan, especially yep. IU basketball, and uh, hoping for a stronger finish to the year than the start has been. But this thanks, true. thanks for having us on. The yep. defense helps. Yeah, yes. I mean, playing the Wisconsin defense game helps. was good. Yeah, yeah. Yes. defense was yeah. much better. Yep. Yeah, I, had, I saw someone, um, describe Wisconsin basketball as hopefully this is offending listeners here, but they refer to Wisconsin brand of basketball as dry humping. And I was like, you know, <laughs> I never would have thought about that. But if you think about it, that's dead true because it's the most boring version of basketball yeah. ever to watch. And for IU to finally beat them, because it seems like it's been right a you know, hundred years. You know, with a legitimate score, like a legitimate beatdown, was kind of nice to see. So Jimmy and I have season tickets, uh, 10th row behind the bucket, four together. And I told my wife at the start of this season, no matter what we have on the calendar, I am going to the IU-Wisconsin game. Because personally, we I have lost the last nine IU-Wisconsin games that I've attended. So it's good to finally win one. Right. One for nine now. Agreed. <laughs> I almost wasn't going to go because the way we played the last couple of games is like, I'm, I'm done. Right. And Maddie, who was home from Tennessee, was like, I really want to go to that game. I'm like, all right, fine, let's go. And I'm glad we did. Yeah, that was a hell of a second half. Yeah. I would like to personally reach out and thank Maddie for sending uh, Tavon Jackson <laughs> yes. from oh. Tennessee to yes. IU. Yes. That's yeah. She goes to Tennessee. She's a ball. She yeah. is. Yeah. She was not real happy when that news broke. Um, but do you think that she could send a left tackle, a left guard, <laughs> and a right tackle, right guard, maybe a center? Yeah. That was my one response to that tweet. I think Tom Allen put out, I was like, now can we protect him, please? Right. That'd be great. Yep. Absolutely. So we'll see what happens. Well, cool. Um, what can you guys tell us about Kennedy Tank? The average listener may not be familiar with you guys. You want to pr- kind of provide some history on what you guys do? Yeah, absolutely. So we're a fifth generation uh, family owned business and we fabricate steel tanks, uh, shell and tube heat exchangers, ASME pressure vessels, and we have a field arm that erects large uh, field erected tanks at our customer sites. And our great-great-grandfather started the business in 1898. We have two other locations. Our great-grandfather started uh, Southern Tank in Owensboro, Kentucky. Uh, that's still operated and owned by the Kennedy family and operated by great people down there, about 40 people at that business. And our grandpa started Staffco, Steel Tank and Fabricating Corp., which uh, is a steel tank fabricating business in Columbia City, Indiana, with about 25 employees. And we mostly build uh, or weld and fabricate uh, tanks, vessels, shell and tube heat exchangers for the chemical and petrochemical industry. And like I said earlier, we have about 225 employees when you consider all three businesses and the field arm of Kennedy Tank. Right. Do you still operate all three like completely independently or are they kind of under the same umbrella? Or They're under the same umbrella but yeah. operated independently. We have really veteran and great employees at all three sites. And yeah. we always say they're more capable of – you know, choosing the right answers than we would be trying to micromanage from Indy. Sure. Um, fifth generation is not easy. I mean, there's not that many businesses out there that survive that long or make it that long for any number of different reasons. Um, what would you guys say has kind of been the secret sauce to for that to continue to go? 
Correct. So we're entering our 125th year uh, this year, and uh, obviously our great-great-grandfather started the business, and we're a part of the fifth generation. I'm president of the company. Jimmy's our vice president of sales. Our younger brother, Patrick's a welder out in our manufacturing shop, and our cousin, uh, Kevin Bolin, is an estimator for us uh, in the office. And, you know, every generation of Kennedys had different challenges they had to overcome to pass it to the next. But overall, I would say it's a commitment by the family and especially the family members who've worked in the business the last five generations to really want to keep it going, Mm -hmm. to want um, it to continue to grow and to make good long-term decisions that have allowed the next generation to come behind them. Right, yeah. Um, We just finished 2022. You said it was a, you had had, last couple of years have been really good. Um, Anything in particular that really drives your guys' business? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good question, Vince. So right now, really in 2023, we're in such a sweet spot when it comes to the tank and vessel industry, because we're doing a lot of business with a lot of old school industries, such as refineries, steel mills, but now we're getting involved in a lot of this renewable work. Okay. So we're working with plants that are turning landfill plastics into biofuels and also doing a lot of different innovative recycling processes that are just getting started here in the U.S. Um, A lot of these processes are big overseas, but now that they're getting started, we're really getting the best of both worlds, which has really helped us because we have a great customer base that have been with us a long time. They really you know, value the quality of the work that we do. But now that we're getting in front of new customers in these exciting spaces, the sky truly is the limit. And I would say since the pandemic started, uh, the United States finally figured out that we needed to start start manufacturing things again. And a lot of our customers, instead of relying on China and overseas countries, are bringing manufacturing back and they're building onto their sites. They're ordering more tanks, vessels, and to have more control of their whole pipeline. And uh, no matter what industry we're in, our customer base has just been expanding in the last three years, and it's been a fun ride to be a part of. Yeah, I'm glad so, you mentioned reshoring just because I know in, in our industries, selling chemicals or paints to manufacturers in the last uh, three years, probably, you know, pandemic aside, we've started to get inquiries from jobs or companies that typically aren't still being done here in the U.S., mm-hmm. Uh, which, is, which has been interesting to see. And, and we've been talking about reshoring for probably the last decade, mm-hmm. but I think there's been some real momentum and it sounds like you guys are seeing the same thing. Yes, we absolutely are. And, you know, as Bill's answer to the first question, really the difference at Kennedy Tank is our people. So I was at cars.com for about six years in okay. Chicago and Denver doing advertising sales and a couple sales roles. And cars.com is a wonderful company and the people just do a tremendous job. But going from you know, an office job where your typical day, you're in the office at 8.30, you're out the door right at 5, to Kennedy Tank where half our employees are at work at 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. Um, their alarm clocks, most of our employees' alarm clocks goes, goes off actually in the threes because they have to drive an hour to get to work. And they work till 4, but if you'll let them work till 5, 5.30 and earn some overtime, they certainly will. And our office office is as dedicated as well as any office team I've been around. So that's been a huge part. It obviously helps that the fact that, you know, just our clothes, for example, the raw material in our clothes, all of the raw materials for this shirt was in a tank or a vessel at some point. Um, So certainly it helps that the market has stayed strong and there's such a need for our products. 
but it really comes down to those those people and uh, obviously the family's been very important but also non-family members truly treat kennedy tank like they're a part of the ownership group which is our it's our big difference yep yeah well said well you're, you're it's obviously there's a, a touch of pride when you when you say fifth generation because it's something you've repeated and and, and, and certainly understandable uh, as it's sort of a general rule of thumb, there are a lot of family businesses that never make it past the third generation. And you, you commented this in your intro uh, on the idea that family members from generation to generation, you know, the, the the older generation makes it a point to have something to pass on to the younger generation and obviously instill something in them. So what was it for you guys as you're growing up, particularly in your, in your high school years and in undergraduate that said, okay, maybe I want to join the family business at some point. Like what? <clears throat> What drove that? Right. So um, our father, obviously, he unfortunately passed away at the beginning of COVID, but he was our fourth generation president for 25 years. And Jimmy and I and our younger brother, Patrick, who works at Kennedy Tank, we all just loved our dad. And we grew up playing basketball very competitively. And dad, he would, you know, rebound out in our front yard. We had a full court. Uh, court with lights and everything. And we spent so much time with our dad when he was outside of work that really growing up, I just always wanted to spend more time with him and work work with him professionally. Um, because like I tell our team members all the time, we spend more time with each other than we do our families a lot of the time with how many hours and how hard we all work together. Um, but the interesting thing growing up in high school and everything, our dad put zero pressure on us to join the family business. And he would even tell us that I think you guys can make more money outside the family business than you can inside if you work, you know, as good a, or as as highly as I think of you guys that you could work your way up the chain of a publicly traded company based in Indianapolis and do really, really well. But we were we always just were grown to him. And when I graduated from Bloomington, I uh, went to IU and studied finance down there at that beautiful place. Uh, our dad had a clause that said any any family members had to graduate from college, work outside the business for two years, and then interview with the executive team if a position opened up. And uh, I got an internship and then did a full-time job in Louisville for two years, and then uh, uh, proposed to my wife, got married, uh, and did started my uh, MBA. But I always, even in high school and college, although we'd never talk about it openly, I always wanted to be a part of the business to spend more time with him. Yeah, yeah which is really interesting because my dad was an only son, and he grew up even as early as late high school painting tanks. Okay. So whenever he was trying to make a buck, and definitely in college, he was at the plant painting tanks kind of offhandedly learning the business. Um, but I am internally grateful for him not pushing it upon us which is why um, all of us really went elsewhere first and then ended up kind of organically coming back home to what we believe is the greatest city in the United States, Indianapolis, um, and working for Kennedy Tank. Yeah. I, kudos to your dad because I've talked to, let's say, young kids, kids like you guys. I was 16 when you were born, which makes me feel really old. Um, but kids who have who are a lot like, like, like us, they have a family business, they have the opportunity where they could go straight out of college and into it. Um, but if I ever get the opportunity to talk to him, I recommend just like your dad did go somewhere else, go cut your teeth on someone else's dime. Cause let's face it. I mean, at 22, yep. we don't know what the hell we're doing. Right. Um, and, and half of us don't even know what we still want to do. Um, so go kind of figure things out somewhere else. 
and really determine do you want to then come back and join it some sometimes you may you may not um and i, I think more times than not it has worked itself out and and probably been better off for folks to do that so i'm glad glad your dad uh, had mentioned that and you guys also kind of followed suit with that that's mm -hmm. good so uh on on the business side we touched or vince used the word i was going to use reshoring which you touched on which sounds like a catalyst of obviously with with covid and resulting supply chain issues which were probably already sort of going to emerge at some point it just got exacerbated very quickly by a, right. a global pandemic mm -hmm. um I assume that there's still some carryover from 21, 22, going into 23 from demand on that. But what does the crystal ball look like for you guys for 23? What are some of your greatest opportunities that you see coming down this next you know, 12 months? And probably what are your greatest concerns or, or uh, challenges that you foresee? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, really, you know, when COVID hit, we all thought the worst. And, and frankly, after about a six month kind of gray period, uh, demand just continue to rise, which which we definitely didn't see. And then it got to the point in 20, I would say late, let's see, late 2021 to halfway through 2022, where customers didn't even care what the price was. They needed the product. And we were getting POs. Honestly, we are 30, 40% busier than we'd ever been. And we were getting orders pretty much sight unseen. And I think now as we transition to a more normal supply chain as deliveries kind of scale back and actually improve. Customers are still moving forward with with projects and in numerous industries, but they are starting to look at at costs uh, mm -hmm. specifically. So I think uh, you know that that fun period is probably over. We're still in a good market, we think um, outside of you know interest rates, economy, stock market, et cetera. We think a lot of capital projects, are going to move forward, especially thanks to the Indiana Economic Development Committee. I want oh. to give a shout out to them because they, I mean, the amount of companies coming to Indiana is bonkers when it comes to manufacturing. Um, so we expect this year to be a good year. We are about 25% busier than we've been in the past, uh, you know, 10 years on average right now, which is down a little bit from where we were a year ago, but still it's a wonderful place to start. And we think it'll be really strong. Yeah, I agree with that. We think it's still a really solid market. It's not as crazy and bonkers, like Jimmy says, as it was there for uh, nine months. But we continue to be extremely busy, working a lot of overtime, hiring, uh, building a lot of tanks, and welding like crazy. Yeah, it's been interesting. One piece of our puzzle is obviously the material market. Mm -hmm. So we build tanks and vessels of carbon steel, stainless steel, exotic alloys that range from 40 cents a pound all the way up to about eight bucks a pound okay. um and post covid that the pricing not only demand but pricing for those products due to war in ukraine etc um really went through the roof and there's still you know depending on what you're looking at it's either double or two and a half times the historical price which honestly kind of helps us because a tank that used to cost twenty thousand is now maybe twenty seven thousand and you know you're still marketing it up a certain percent, which hopefully will add to the bottom line. Right. Um, but our industry is unique. It's really a lot of family businesses, kind of like Kennedy Tank. We're in the definitely when it comes to tank and vessel fabricators, we're on the larger end. We're not the largest, but certainly on the larger end. And it's a lot of just wonderful people that work hard. Um, it's not a lot of big corporations, uh, which kind of plays into our 
unique advantage by using technology, uh, you know, bettering our processes internally uh, to make us the best we can be. Yeah. How have you guys seen raw material supplies that starting to get better? It is. I think it definitely is compared to some of the worst parts of COVID. Right. Uh, stainless coming down a little bit. Sta yeah, carbon steel is definitely coming down, but uh, we do about half our work in carbon, half our work in stainless. Stainless, right. again, has just the last couple of weeks, uh, nickel has really uh, risen quite a bit, which has caused uh, stainless to jump up again. It's pretty much at an all-time high now, but we at least can get the material. And if we can get it, we can build it. <laughs> We got a slight price decrease on uh, five-gallon steel pails. So that was a nice start. Oh, yeah, it's wonderful. I haven't heard that in a while. Now, of course, the same hour that I got that email, I had four other emails with price increases and other materials. So, yep. you know, it's good with the bad. Yep. Um, we talked about your dad a little bit. Um, I was I had the pleasure of knowing your dad. A um, couple things I wanted to ask you. So... We had a prior guest, it was a buddy of mine who was in a somewhat similar role as, as you guys was in the family business, probably a plan in place, but certainly was premature and his, and his father passed away unexpectedly and kind of thrust him into a role that he might have been destined for, but not at that point in time. Um, I don't know how how far along your guys' plan was, if that plan existed, um, and, and, and certainly you know, your father's passing was, was, was not planned. Um, so two things. One, kudos to you guys for for stepping in, and it's been a little bit of time now. And I've, I, from what I've seen from the outside, things are haven't really missed a beat and are, are plugging away. So kudos to you guys for doing that. But um, how would you say? Obviously, it was a very difficult time. But how would you say that whole process went? Do you think you were well set up for that transition, or was it like, oh shit, now what do we do? Right. Yeah. Let me talk on okay. this real quick. Really. You know, we was there a plan in place? Yes, there probably was. But we are so fortunate to have to have Bill as our leader. So it was truly a no brainer. So Bill had been with the company about five, about seven years prior, had ran our manufacturing, started in purchasing, had bettered our manufacturing from what I used to call, you know, we were the Notre Dame fighting Irish. Now we're the Dallas Cowboys, especially when the Cowboys are good. Obviously, we hope to become the old New England Patriots. But Bill had been such a vital— Or the old Indianapolis Colts. Yeah, or the old <laughs> Colts. But Bill had been such a vital part of bettering our entire process. We all knew that, you know, whether it was five years from now, ten years from now, whatever that time frame was, he was going to lead the company. Um, so when, unfortunately, Dad passed, there was really no decision to be made. If you had interviewed 250 employees, 250 would have said— you know, this is a no-brainer. Bill's the best guy to move us forward. And yeah. Thanks to that, and thanks to the entire team, the executive team, which Bill will talk about, is a good mix of young and old. Um, the team or the company has just moved forward at a rapid pace. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> thank you, Jim. And it was just a shocking time when Dad uh, obviously is right at the beginning of COVID in April of uh, 2020, and you know, back then you weren't even able to get tested for it. Uh, all the ERs were full. They really weren't accepting people. And it was just a real, real tough deal. Our dad was healthier than we both are, you know, less than 10% body fat worked out twice a day. And just unfortunately, the mix of uh, his genetic makeup and that virus just went downhill and it went extremely fast. So um, we sure do miss him, but our team came together, uh, the family included, everyone was on the same page. Everyone knew uh, the right decisions that need to be made. And we just moved on right away, continued his legacy forward. And uh, for us, 
you know, obviously losing our dad at such a young age is very sad. And we think about him absolutely constantly, but we know what he would want us to do, which is take care of the business, uh, move forward, work hard, treat people fairly. And uh, his grave site's within a mile of Kennedy Tank, so we always feel uh, feel that he's with us and helping uh, help us make good decisions and move the business forward. And it's been a hell of a run. Uh, and everyone at Kennedy Tank will tell you that. We really haven't lost a beat, and we've improved in a lot of different ways and uh, just finished up our fiscal year. It was our best year ever by a wide margin, and we're optimistic about 2023. So going through that whole experience um... – on a professional level, anything you learned that you would want to, to pass along to anybody else who might find themselves in a same situation? You know, show up. It, it, the COVID was really difficult, and it was really difficult when Dad passed. But the, la the year after that or the 18 months or two years after that, it really wasn't that much easier because we have 225 employees. Yeah. You know, people are getting COVID. People, the hardest part about COVID, I would say, is the different ways people reacted to it. You had both pendulums, you know, some people would react one way, the other people would react the other way. You wanted to treat everyone fairly and protect, protect our teammates. But uh, it was just different. It was like the song that never ends almost that every day and every week we would be dealing with different issues. And uh, what I would tell a young leader who had to face anything similar is one, just do the best you can Two, show up every day, work hard, three, treat people fairly. And four, and I think this happened quite a bit during the pandemic, leaders didn't know, the, one, the government didn't know the answers. So leaders at company, at family businesses that have right. 225 employees, guess what? They didn't either. But it is okay to say you do not know and that uh, you don't have all the answers. And uh, I, looking back, I think any leader leading through the pandemic would probably say they wish they did that a little bit more because uh, the whole thing was just a total mess. Yeah, I would... I I listened to your story and you have two business school case studies mm. that are very serious situations mashed into one like ultimate case study. Um, so it's, uh, it's incredibly impressive to, to hear your answers uh, both on the professional side and of course the personal side. I mean, you can, you can hear it uh, in your voice. Um, and, and I think from our experience, we, we would agree with you guys on, on the comment you made. You know, it seemed like from April of 20 and the six months that followed that were certainly very challenging because, as you noted, there was a lot of unknown. Mm -hmm. And all we could do from our business, I was just try to find some sort of guiding light or some sort of principle and, and stick to that and be consistent with it. But then beyond that, going into 21 and all of 22, while business was very strong because demand was off the charts, it was probably more challenging than that six months of like depth of COVID because you just, it was, as you mentioned, sales are this January aren't as strong as last January, but they're still very strong historically. And in a way, as much as I don't like saying, man, having a little bit less revenue is good. It's, it's, it's kind of like, oh, like you can breathe a little bit because the, the 21, 22 pace, no way anyone, I know from speaking on my own behalf, yeah. no right. way I could have sustained that. Right. Because it was just bananas. Yes. Um, so it's, it's, it's almost refreshing, you know, misery loves company in a way, right? right? It's refreshing to hear everyone's <laughs> yeah. stories and it's okay. Yeah. We can commiserate on those things. Really good things going on. You know, a lot of problems, all, most of which were good, but nonetheless problems. And it, it, it puts a little age on you for sure. Mm -hmm. 
So more, more so for him than it does for me, <laughs> but you know, that's how it works. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. I hope we so, never have to go through another pandemic again. No kidding. Yeah. Um, I have a question to, to, to segue into and much to a much lighter side, mm-hmm. uh, or a much lighter conversation. Uh, you guys are a big racing family. You have a history there, uh, that goes back you know, many decades. Mm-hmm. Like before asking my questions, if you could tell the listeners the, the story of how we, <clears throat> that all kind of started the race car, the, the famous or infamous race car, uh, the candy special. We'd love to hear that. Yes. Well, we love the Indianapolis 500. We have, uh, over a hundred tickets for every race. We caravan about 25 cars together, meet at 5 AM at our aunt and uncle's house, the Fairchilds and caravan and all park together. They're and, Christmas wreath customers, by the way. Good, <laughs> good, good. About 70 of us sit together and the other 30 uh, sit all over and we have a big breakfast tailgate before the race. But the funnest tailgate is the post-race tailgate. So we'll be out in lot two until about 11 p.m. Every race night, we'll have a bunch of speakers, beer die, flip cup, uh, beer pong, you name it. We play it, and there'll be three, 400 people that all meet in lot two after the race. So you guys, I know you're big lot IndyCar two. fans, race fans, lot two after <laughs> yeah, the race. Sure. Please, please join us. PM, I'm sure please join Speedway, us. Please or the yellow yeah. shirts love you guys. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we, uh, used to Kennedy tank used to sponsor, uh, cars in the Indianapolis 500 from 1936 to 1952. Our best finish that the Kennedy tank special placed was eighth. And that was, in, we started 14th, finished eighth in 1950. Uh, 46, which was great, great for us. But uh, my dad wrote two books on the Indianapolis 500. One is a 500 question trivia book. The other is a Cliff Notes version of every single race. And about four months after he wrote his first trivia book, uh, someone calls my dad uh, on his work phone and says, hey, we have your car. And he goes, well, you don't have my car. I'm looking at it right out the window. It's in the parking lot. He goes, and he says, no, I think I have your Kennedy tank special race car. I've read your book. So my dad and a group uh, went, drove out to Illinois and uh, inspected the car. It was not in very good shape, but they were able to confirm that it was the actual car that we sponsored in the Indy 500. Uh, Kennedy tank purchased the car and refurbished it to its original condition. It sits in our lobby. Anyone's welcome to come see it. And it still drives at almost 140 miles an hour. And, uh, you know, we love Roger Penske and that whole group, but uh, before their ownership uh, started, uh, we were able to take it out to the track uh, two or three times a year and run it with all the old cars, and it was an absolute blast. It was my dad's favorite thing to do, and we'd always say it was the most dangerous thing you could ever do, <laughs> watching your dad actually go 140 miles an hour in a car with a leather helmet that has a handbrake and is shaking the whole time. Yeah. So but, the so the Kennedy Tank Special, which we have in our lobby, as Bill mentioned, um, ran in 1948. So so Les Anderson out of Portland, Oregon, built the car, drove it. It actually ran in 48 and 49. So in 48, he drove it, finished in the 20s. In 49, he couldn't get the speed that needed to qualify because back then you had much more, obviously, than – then, I mean, I think sometimes you had over 60 cars qualifying. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so another gentleman drove it in 49, um, and the qualifying speed was like one, I think they got it up to 150, but it was around 130 um, oh, average average, yeah. average lap. Yeah. So our dad, as Bill mentioned, favorite thing to do in the world, a couple times a year would get out there, and uh, especially a couple of years ago, there weren't a whole lot of rules and speed limits associated with the laps that he ran. 
And so I qualified in 48, 49 at 130, and dad was going about about 120 on the straights. Um, and we would time it and kind of wave to him. And, you know, at the start, he was waving. By the end, he was white-knuckling it. Yep. Um, but that was his heaven. And he would yeah. we would get to the track on Fast Friday, literally. We'd go to Charlie Brown's, get there at right at 6 a.m., be at the track by 6.30 to watch him with about 10 other people. And you just had the ultimate respect for him. And Dad always kind of had a – he was a very charismatic uh, – guy certainly loved by so many um, but he had a glow about him at the track and there was nothing i still haven't seen anything like it people just were absorbed to him um and he i want to say he went to 59 straight indy 500s 59 or 60 it's right yeah. around yeah that. 57 uh, was it 57 okay which just shows that was there was nothing quite like yeah. it. yeah when was the last time that car's been on the track so just before the pandemic um, would have been in the summer before summer of 2019, but we did yep. Patrick, our young brother, who's a welder out in our shop. Uh, he ran it quite a bit around Kennedy tank. We have a 21 acre property, about 110 square uh, thousand square feet under roof that we fabricate in. And we have a big oval of course, around buildings <laughs> and Patrick was whipping it around this summer because it had been since the summer of 2019 since we had okay. actually uh, driven it and put miles on it. And Patrick's going to carry that legacy forward. Real passionate about it. He works with Bill Yazel, who's our uh, one of our maintenance men uh, on the car. And Pat has learned a lot about it. And he just drives it very fast so around, around our property. <laughs> my next question is when that thing comes back out, who's who's driving it? I think so there's an answer to that. Patrick is. Okay. And we hadn't touched on this, but... Uh, so Jimmy's our great vice president of sales at Kennedy Tank, um, the president of the three businesses. Patrick uh, was a really good basketball player at Chittard. Then he went to the Kelly School in Bloomington with us, was a fraternity brother of ours, and he uh, studied finance. And all through schooling, starting at a very young age, Pat was always the most naturally and hardest working student, a very high IQ student, got really good grades, didn't quite get in Notre Dame, but got close. And... Uh, he did a sales job right out of college and he didn't like it. It just didn't fit him. And uh, he wanted to do something with his finance major that he could, at the end of the day, be proud of what he did and what he built. So he started welding for us on nights. We used to do day shift, night shift. Now we've moved everyone to days, but Pat would do his sales job and then spend about four hours at Kennedy Tank learning how to weld. And he got, he had no welding experience. You know, no one in the Kennedy family had welded since our uh, great grandfather. And uh, Pat joined us full time as a welder out in the shop, uh, joined us on days, was uh, on the structural section. So a lot of flux wear fillet welds and was learning, learning, learning and doing really well. Then dad and I wanted him to uh, go get a welding degree from uh, Hobart Institute of Welding's uh, nine-month structural program in uh, Troy, Ohio. And Pat went and did that on nights uh, for nine months, and then came back in our shop, and he's been with us a total of seven years. He's one of the guys, Boilermaker in the shop, uh, welding for us, treated exactly like everyone else. And it's just so wonderful to have you know, a guy in the family, in the fifth generation, that is just one of the guys fabricating in the shop, working hard, bell to bell, showing up at 5.30, working until 4 p.m. or 5.30 p.m. And Jimmy's doing a great job in sales, managing sales and estimating. 
I, since dad passed, had to step up into the president role. But to have a fifth generation with this growing company that has family members and all different levels uh, of the organization has just been awesome for us. Yeah. What do we need to do to get that car back on the track, though? So we're going to work Doug, on Doug Bowles, if, yeah. you're, if you're watching. Well, we, we love Doug. We, we <laughs> will wear a blue suit in your honor if we can get the car back on the track. Yeah. Is, is it worthy? Like, is it, I was, it sounds like it's roadworthy enough that if you wanted to take, you know, to participate in the, uh, was it the SRVA or the, right. the vintage automobile yeah. racing is, I don't know if they. We're going to get it there out there. Not. The most proud moment we've been of the car was on the 100th running of the Indy 500. I forget the year Rossi won, maybe 2015 or 16, mm -hmm. whatever year it was. My dad gets a call at 10 PM and they had, I believe, and I could be wrong on this. My dad of course would know, but I believe they had 33 cars before the race, say two or three hours before the race do parade laps. Yeah. And it was the most 33 or however many most famous cars that they had. And one of them, uh, they could not get there. And they figured this out at 10 p.m. that night. The so, night before the race? The night before yeah, the okay. race. So they call Doug and their team, uh, call my dad, who was laying in bed. Obviously, we try to go to bed early the night before <laughs> the race since we're up at 3 a.m. And uh, my dad works with Bill Yazel, our maintenance guy, the legend. And they pull an all-nighter. And because it's really hard, like at 6 a.m., you never could get that truck and trailer with the car in it to the right location to be able oh, to right. do laps on the track. So they pull an all-nighter, get it to IMS at uh, 2 a.m. the morning of the race, and Sam Hornish Jr., and we're all there, 70 of us sitting together, and we're cheering on our car, the Kennedy Tank Special, being driven by Sam Hornish Jr. That's pretty uh, cool. two hours before the 100th running. So that, that was a really That's proud moment. Awesome. That is awesome. I, I recall the vintage race cars going around mm -hmm. um, that that was one of the cooler parts of obviously the hundreds running and a little obviously everything was a little bit extra right. for that race and that was awesome to see. Yeah. I mean, you go to the museum, which I love going to, and you can see it, but then to actually see it, the fact like, oh my gosh, there's like the Marmon Moss, but it's actually right. running. Yes, like, yep, that's pretty cool. There actually is a photo of Sam Hornish Jr. Uh, I believe waving to Parnelli Jones, who is driving the Marmon Wasp uh, that sits right in our lobby, a picture. You can see the special and that beautiful car. That's, That's awesome. awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, we appreciate you guys bringing these books in. Yep. Um, this reminds me, one of my last experiences with your dad was we were out at the track for, um, was it the ABC did a day at the track, the ABC group. We were out there with our dad and sometime, at, you know, this is end of the night. Practice is already over, but we're sitting in the Speedway Motel. The uh, flag so room, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Sitting there in, in, in the bar, you know, having another cocktail that none of us needed, um, talking about just race history. And you're basically it's like like pulling your dad's string and just letting him go. And we're just sitting here just kind of absorbing all the stuff, which was a pretty cool experience. Um, final question I've got for you guys is on the business side, every generation, the next generation has you know, thoughts on the business. They don't, most of them are not what we call cruise control guys. We want to make our own stamp. We don't just want to be looking back as, you know, silver spoon kids that just kind of put it on cruise control and go with the flow. What would you guys say is going to be your stamp? What do you think will be your stamp to take, take Kennedy tank to the next level? So we, through our, uh, businesses we had the busiest year we've ever had in 2022 we worked about 370,000 labor hours at our three manufacturing shops and our field division when you uh combine it all and what jimmy and i and our exec group and the family 
always talk about is we want to incrementally and successfully grow and work more hours, you know, employ more people and mo keep moving our business in the right in the right direction uh, incrementally. And uh, two ways we're doing this at this time is we have two big construction projects going on, both at Kennedy Tank at Staffco. At Staffco, we're building an indoor blast building so we can put a nice profile on the tanks before we paint the tanks uh, since 1952. We've sort of been doing that half outside, half in a shed, but now we're gonna have a new uh, beautiful building that will allow us to do it inside before we push the tanks into the paint building. And at Kennedy Tank, we have uh, Force Constructions helping us with a uh, about 60 by 100 foot uh, large fabrication building that our field division's gonna use to uh, build mechanical piping projects and also do ASME and tank repair and shell and tube heat exchanger repair. So a part of that incremental growth is having enough square footage space to be able to build uh, what we build. And we have two nice sized construction projects uh, going on now. But I don't think this generation's really focused about recreating the wheel or uh, changing too much. It's just allowing, we have great people, like Jimmy said, we love our people, they love us. They all have very long tenure and stay with us um, for their careers for the most part. And we just want to give our people all the tools we can to be successful. My dad's biggest motto was we win as a team, we lose as a team. And we really believe in sharing the uh, year-end results with our teammates who are making the results happen. And it's one of the big reasons we have such good uh, dedicated employees. So I'd say this generation wants to incrementally grow like we have been and give our team the resources they need to be successful. Yeah, I think that's very well said there. I think the only thing I'd add is, you know, a part of our stamp will just be how we treat people. I mean, as Bill mentioned, you're with the people you work with more than you're with your family. Right. Um, I think we brought kind of a more of a focus on the whole person, not just the person at work. Um, and, you know, that culture's developed, honestly, on a minute by minute hourly basis and you can lose it honestly in a minute by minute basis so it's continuing that focus it's really thanks to bill dan yoder our team we do, dove extremely deep in technology i mean we literally have gone from whiteboards to touchscreen monitors all throughout our facility that has made us just a ridiculous amount of uh, more efficient mm -hmm. So I think the technology is big, but I also think how we treat people and obviously the controllables, effort, attitude, um, which were, you know, a big part of my dad's philosophy as well, will always be a key. Yep. Awesome. Any well, questions you guys have for us? I was hoping you'd give <laughs> us that. Well, what are some advice you two would have for, you know, you guys can remember back when you were 34. Um, Barely. You've had, you guys have a lot of great experiences in your careers. What advice would you give to guys like us? Well, that, I'm sure that first one with anybody deciding to come into a family business to, to make sure they go elsewhere first, just to kind of, you know, get their feet wet. Um, you know, my big thing is just, is, is I, like I'm never satisfied. And so that was kind of where that, that last question stemmed from is trying to figure out what is, what is that stamp that we can put on, on the business. And, and Joe and I have talked, you know, numerous times about where do we want to take the company and it's not just, you know, taking what dad had done and, and just kind of riding that, but, but taking it and, and building on that. Um, so I don't know that's necessarily advice. It's just, it's just kind of this, this, this school of thought, this, you know, this attitude, if you will, that, that, um, I, I think 
people going into a regardless of what generation it is into a family business needs to have that that attitude of of pressing forward don't don't sit back we all we all know the only constant in life is change right right and so just because the company's been successful the last hundred years doesn't mean it's going to continue for the next hundred you've got to continue to adapt and and figure that out and if that means you know taking it up a notch then then so be it um wow uh so I'll be 45 in a couple of weeks. So 11 years ago <laughs> would have been what, 20, 20, sorry, 2012 ish. So we were, you know, I joined the business right before the great recession hit. Hmm. Um, and it's kind of funny. I came to the business. I, I joked that I was guilted into the family business because uh, no one just joins the coatings industry. You kind of get sucked in. Uh, and then once you're in, you're never spit back out. Um, but I joined with the idea of going back to graduate school and getting my MBA and then being part of a, at that time, a much smaller family business during that span of the recession. Like I feel like I earned my master's about five times over. Right. Um, and so 2012, we were outside the recession, but the, I mean, the wound is still, I still have that emotional scar, I think. Uh, but in 2012 growth coming out of that time period was really, really small. Um, and very incremental because of a lot of the regulations of the government in, in most cases, rightfully so, but in, in plenty of cases kind of probably overdid some of the, some of the regulation to really, um, kind of inhibit that economic rebound of coming back up above, uh, whatever equilibrium was at that time. Um, so I look back and I, you know, I, I would probably tell myself, um, at that time that number one, it's going to be hard. Uh, number two, don't quit. And, uh, the third thing I would tell myself would be just whatever decisions that are going to be made, be really, really stubborn, uh, and borderline hard headed on them. Uh, like if you're going to make a decision, believe in it, that doesn't mean don't be open to feedback or open to other people's opinions when making the decision, but once it's made, believe that you've made the right decision. Um, and, and I think for the most part over the last 10 plus years, uh, we've more than quadrupled in size. We've had some acquisitions. We've had, we've grown people. Um, and, and similar to your story, we have a lot of people that have been with us for a very long time. Um, we haven't, when we interview people, we have a question that says, how long do you want to keep this job? And my hope is that people say, well, I want to, I want to work here until I retire because our hope when we hire someone, no matter what level that's at, that they say, wow, this is a great company. We want to be a lifer. Mm. Um, if we can continue to see that, and that, that's the true feedback, right? If you're doing the right thing as a manager and creating a safe environment for people to thrive, if people keep coming back year after year, then you know, you're doing something right. If you have a lot of turnover, maybe you need to, to do a, some serious self-reflection on what kind of business you're running. Um, but those kind of three things are what I probably would have, you know, told my 34 year old self. Yeah. It's great stuff. That's great. Yeah. Thank you guys. I can't remember when I was 34. <laughs> it's been a while. Well, unfortunately, IU has not won a national championship since you turned 40, 34. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. My That's oldest, put it. <laughs> my oldest child was it, it was maybe like a few days ago or maybe last week. I can't remember. IU had lost the Colts lost. Like everyone's right. all of our teams kind of earn you know, just the dumps. And he's like, man, why do, what is Indianapolis sports or Indiana sports have to suck so bad? I was like, you know, I remember when IU won its last national championship. I was really young. I mean, I was 
I was nine when IU won in '87, mm-hmm. but I remember when they went to the national championship in 2001. I was in, I, mean, I was I had just graduated, but I went back to Nick's in Bloomington to watch the game. Oh, great! Um, I was you know I remember the, obviously the Colts winning the Super Bowl and going to a second Super Bowl and all that stuff. And he looked at me, he's like, "Oh, you're so old, <laughs> like you're just so old and terrible." I was like, "Yes, I know, I'm wretched." <laughs> yeah, so not to go crazy on Bloomington, but Jimmy and I's first. Four years, or first, our four years at Bloomington were Tom Crean's first four years at IU. So the first year, we were the worst basketball team in the history of the world. Second yeah. year, got a little bit better, but I think we only won one Big Ten game. It was still really rough. Third year, finally won like four or five uh, Big Ten games and showed some promise. Won a couple big ones in our junior year. Then senior year, thank God, we'll never forget when Cody committed to IU. We really desperately needed him. He committed. We had a really good year. We beat. You know, we went from winning one or zero Big Ten games our freshman year to beating Kentucky at home and storming yeah, the court. Yeah. We were at the <laughs> Sweet out. 16 Kentucky game where Kentucky had shot 65% from the free throw line that entire year. And then they go 94% uh, yeah. with 31 free throw shot against us to uh, beat us narrowly in yeah. Atlanta. We were at that one and just love IU. Want us to get back to the top, like where we should be. And we think Woody's going to do it. Well, good. Well, there you have it, folks. Yep. All right. That concludes another episode of the Industrious Podcast. We appreciate you guys for tuning into this episode. If you happen to be watching on the Assessor YouTube channel, thank you for doing so. And hit that little notification bell so you can be alerted when next up new episodes like this one drop. Thanks, guys, for listening. And don't forget, be industrious.